Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Do you feel stuck in life, that you aren't making progress in a relationship, job, or goal, and you don't know how to fix the problem and move forward? Well, perhaps you can take a little solace in the fact that it's a universal human experience, even amongst history's highest achievers. Indeed, when Adam Alter, a social psychologist and professor of marketing, looked at the lives of successful actors, musicians, writers, filmmakers, and entrepreneurs, he found that they had all passed through times in their lives and careers when they felt totally stuck. Today on the show, Adam, who's the author of Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most, explains why getting stuck is inevitable in life, as well as mindset shifts and practices to escape from stuckness. We first talk about what contributes to getting stuck, including the goal grading effect, and how the illusion of the creative cliff can keep you from seeing that you may end up doing your best work later in life. We then talk about dealing with the emotional angst of feeling stuck, and how it can be better to initially accept your stuckness than kick against the pricks. From there, we turn to some tactics for getting unstuck, including doing a friction audit and copying the work of others. In my favorite part of the conversation, we discuss the importance of recognizing when to move from exploring to exploiting and vice versa. We end a conversation with why the mantra for getting unstuck is action overall. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash unstuck. All right, Adam Alter, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back again, Brett. So we had you on a few years ago to talk about your book, Irresistible. You got a new book out called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. You walk readers through on how to get unstuck. So we'll start off with that. What do you mean by getting stuck? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because you can get stuck for 10 seconds and you can get stuck for a lifetime. And I'm much more interested in these bigger instances of being stuck across days, weeks, months, years, even decades. And those tend to be fairly common. I've been running a survey for a number of years now on thousands of people around the world, asking them about their experiences of being stuck. And everyone in some respect says, yeah, you know, when I think about it, there's an area where I do feel stuck and I'd like to make some movement. And so I'm, I'm also not just interested in these big instances, but also instances where we have some control. So you know, the April 2020, we were all stuck in place because the government had mandated that we couldn't travel. That, that's not psychologically interesting to me. There's not much you can do about that. You might feel stuck, but that's that's just how it is for that t- period of time. But it turns out that far more common than that are these instances where we do have room to move. And that's what this book is focused on. Yeah, you give three things to define being stuck in life or in work. You're temporarily unable to make progress in a domain that matters to you. You've been fixed in a place for long enough to feel psychological discomfort and your existing habits and strategies aren't solving the problem. And as you said, being stuck can be caused by external forces or internal forces. In this book, you're trying to focus on the internal, correct? Yeah, I I mean, sometimes you're caused to be stuck by something external, but that doesn't mean you don't have the power to shape it or change it. So I'm, I'm interested in cases where we have some agency, where there is room for a better way. And that's really what this roadmap that I provide in the book is focused on. All right, so let's talk about why getting stuck is inevitable. And you highlight a few factors that contribute to getting stuck. The first one is this idea of the goal gradient effect. What is that and why does it contribute to stuckness? Yeah, so the basic idea is that when you do something that takes sustained effort across a period of time, there will be a lull in the middle. 
And if you think about it, at the beginning of any goal, you have the energy of the excitement that comes from starting something new. You tend to do things fast and effectively and efficiently. And then as the goal is is within sight, as you approach it, you speed up again because you can see the finish line, either metaphorically or, or literally. In the middle, though, there's this long period of lull, a sort of quiet where you are in the middle and you don't have a sense of that early push and you don't have the sense of the goal finish line. And so there's this midpoint lull, which happens in pretty much all goals, whether you're a charity trying to attract money for a particular campaign, whether you're an artist trying to create a work, whether you're a business, it doesn't really matter what it is, you will find this midpoint lull. And so that's the goal gradient effect. But it's it's also made worse by the fact that in the middle of the goal, you you tend to hit a plateau. So if you keep doing things the same way, let's say you're you're trying to become fit, you do the same exercise regime over and over again on your way to losing a certain amount of weight, putting on a certain amount of muscle, that will stop working. And it depends on the person. There are some individual differences, but within six to 18 months, most people find that a regime that was working really well for them stops working. It stops having a beneficial effect. Now, humans like things that have worked in the past. They keep doing them until they absolutely can't do them any longer. And so between this this goal gradient, this midpoint lull, and the fact that everything stops working and stops being effective in time, we really need to be nimble and to figure out ways to head off these instances of stuckness before they become uh, major issues. So what are some things you can do to mitigate the goal gradient effect and the plateau effect? So with the goal gradient effect, the best thing you can do is to shrink the middle. Think about writing a book. If it's, you know, I want to write 100,000 words. The day you start writing, you might have a head of steam. You might be doing fine, but there'll be a point. And when you listen to writers, they'll talk about this. And this explains a lot of writer's block. There'll be a point very soon thereafter that you say, you know, this is hard. I'm struggling. And the, the idea of 100,000 words is just completely overwhelming when you've written, say, 500 or 1,000 or 1,500. So the best thing you can do is to shrink the goal, is to bracket it narrowly, as they say. It's about uh, bracketing the goal in a new way. And so one thing you can do is you can break that 100,000 words into 100 instances of 1,000 words each. And if there's something you like to do that's a small reward, you can do that each time you hit a new mark of a thousand words. Now, the benefit of doing that is that you've shrunk the middle. And so when you shrink the middle or eliminate it altogether, you don't have that same lull because you've reframed the way you think of the goal. And this turns out to be very, very effective for writers. For the plateau effect, you know, the solution is written into the problem. The problem is you keep doing the same thing. It stops working. The solution is to change things. If you're running a race or training for a marathon or training for an Ironman or trying to, whatever it might be, you hit a plateau because you're learning a language is the same thing. You just need more than one technique. You can't use the same training program all the time or the same approach to learning all the time. And there's just so much evidence of that across so many domains. So whenever you do anything, be prepared that within a few months, there's a good chance you're going to need to do something new. So be on the hunt for another alternative. And we'll talk about ways to hunt for new alternatives when we talk about this idea of explore versus exploit here in a bit. So you have a chapter about keeping going when you hit that lull or that feeling of stuckness. And uh, you use the band, the 80s synth band, AHA, who wrote, (laughs) uh, you know, Take On Me. What can they teach us about not quitting when we hit a wall? Yeah, I love these stories of colossal successes. And you go back and you find out that, hey, this thing that looks polished and beautiful and worked exactly the way it should work, when you look back, it turns out it didn't always look that way. It was much more complicated. And the song Take On Me by AHA is one of the biggest selling songs of the 80s and, in fact, of all time. But it had several versions and iterations that came before it. And when the band was writing about what it was like to create this song, they talked about how for several years they couldn't get financial backing. Once they got financial backing, the version of the song they created was just a little bit rusty. It didn't have quite the same bounce that it ended up having in its final iteration. They tried floating and releasing the song several times and it just didn't take off commercially. It took three or four bites at the cherry and eventually the American arm of their recording agency said, hey, we got to make a great video for this. And and if you know the song and you know the video, it's this classic 80s video that people will watch. You know, I think it's been viewed billions of times now on YouTube. That video launched the song and launched the band and made the song. And, And 
without that, without that perseverance across a period of many years, that song wouldn't have succeeded the way it did. And there are so many cultural products like that where what you see at the end is this end product that looks like it just sort of arrived fully formed, but that's not where it began. There were instances of stuckness that came before it over and over again. And you had this idea to talk about why it's important to keep going, even when things seem like it's not going anywhere. And one of these ideas is the serial order effect. What is that? Yeah, so this is based on the idea of the creative cliff. And what happens with the serial order effect is some pieces of information are really accessible. They come to you really fast, especially the first pieces of information. And so imagine that I say to you, try to come up with as many creative uses as you can for a paperclip. And what happens is early on, what's top of mind tumbles out. It feels like it's really easy. You can start thinking of some ideas that just come to your mind without much trouble. And eventually what happens is you hit a wall that as you get deeper into the list and into some ideas that are perhaps a little bit further afield, it starts to feel hard and humans interpret that sort of mental difficulty that comes with struggling through a problem like that as we're on the verge of failure. We're not doing a very good job. But it turns out that in in the world of creativity, the good stuff happens once it starts getting hard because the easy stuff everyone can do. There's nothing interesting about what comes easily to you because it probably comes easily to everyone else as well. And so this the, the big idea is that you've really got to persevere, that those ideas that come later on are often the best ideas, even though we sort of perceive them as being less good because they come to us with a bit more difficulty and trial. Gotcha. So the creative cliff is this idea, it's an illusion that our best ideas come early and then after that, they're not any good, but it's actually the opposite. Usually the better ideas come after that wall. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you ask people, uh, you know, Imagine that I'm going to ask you to try to come up with ideas and you, you're going to do 10 ideas now and then we'll do a second session of 10 ideas after that. When do you think your best ideas will come? And almost everyone says, my best ideas will come first. And then the, the ideas, you know, ideas 11 to 20 later on are not going to be as good. It's going to be harder and it's just probably going to be a bit stale by that point. But when you actually look, that's an illusion that we all have or most of us have the good stuff comes at the end and that's the creative cliff illusion. We think our creativity is going to fall off a cliff, but actually it skyrockets, it takes off. And so as things get hard, interesting ideas tend to tumble out if you persevere. It's a mistake to quit at that point. So the idea to mitigate that is just to keep, when it feels hard, just you got to keep going. It's not working until it feels hard, basically. So that's your signal that you're doing something right And that doesn't mean go on forever, right? There is a cottage industry of books now that say you should quit. We don't quit often enough. And I think that's true. I think there are many times when you need to quit. But if you're in a concerted period of trying to come up with creative ideas or solutions, do not think that because it gets hard, you failed or that you should stop. That's the moment when you really got to dig in and keep going for a bit longer. And I love this idea of the creative cliff because I'm in middle age now. I've turned 40. And there's this popular idea that people have that if you don't, if you're not a success in your 20s or 30s, you're pretty much, it's, it's over for you. But no, actually, as you get older, if you keep pushing beyond and keep producing, you can have, still be prolific, even in your 40s, 50s, 60s. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, you know, what we focus on in the media, in uh, podcasts, in popular culture in general is these cases of precocious talent. We're very fascinated by people in their teens and 20s who come up with brilliant ideas and make huge amounts of money, are very successful. And and young prodigies, talents like that, precocious talents are fascinating, but they're also incredibly unusual. When you look at the, the people who start the most successful businesses in the world, they are on average between 40 and 50 years old. And there's a good reason for that. It's not surprising. It's only surprising against the backdrop of assuming that you have to be incredibly young to be a successful entrepreneur. But by 40 or 50, you've lived a bit, you've got a little bit more experience, you know what works and doesn't, and you've refined your ideas and talents. And yeah, using that same creative cliff idea across the longer period of decades, things have started to perhaps get hard. Maybe your first ideas in your 20s and 30s weren't perfect, but they came easily. And then things might have got a little bit harder in your 30s, 40s, 50s. But that's when they get good and interesting and when you use that experience to great effect. And then you also talk about the impact of luck in creative endeavors or in work endeavors. Some businesses, some professions, some things are more prone to luck. And that can be demoralizing, right? You put out good stuff and then nothing happens. But you have to keep going because 
maybe the next one that will be the thing that that catapults you to success like every time you do something it's like a, it's like buying a lottery ticket in a sense yeah exactly you know you sort of see luck as this kind of mystical thing and it 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 robs you of a sense of control but the way to really think about luck is that it just is the thing that emerges after enough time. It may come soon, it may come later, but if you have enough attempts at whatever it is that you're doing or you do it for long enough, you can manufacture luck. It's, it's a little unpredictable, but regardless of which career you're in, regardless of how much luck is attached to that particular career, by continuing on, by pushing through, you do tend to stumble on it eventually. So in the second half of the book, you talk about how to deal with the depression and angst that can come with getting stuck. And one strategy is radical acceptance. What is that? Yeah, radical acceptance. It's this idea from Eastern philosophy, from Buddhism, that things kind of suck sometimes. Things get hard and you basically got to take a couple of deep breaths and accept that that's the way they are. And it's more complicated than that. It, it, there's quite a lot written about it and how it works. But the basic idea is the first thing you need to do is just take a pause and kind of accept where you are before you start making strategies to change. And there are sort of versions of this in the book that I talk about that are much more down to earth than this this philosophy, which is a little bit abstract. But when you look at how some of the most talented people in their fields respond to being stuck, a lot of them paradoxically do less. They slow down. They do the kind of Zen thing, which is to say they don't do anything, at least initially. And that's that turns out to be a tremendously beneficial way of at least initially coping with, with stuckness. I talk about Lionel Messi and Andre Agassi and the jazz pianist Herbie Hancock. There are a whole lot of examples in the book of these people who learn to do less to get more out of themselves. Well, yeah, I think this idea of radical acceptance, I think people confuse it with having to, like, they, they, they confuse acceptance with putting a, a value judgment on it. So just because you accept something doesn't mean you think it's good. You're accepting the fact that you're in a crappy situation the same way you'd accept the fact that the sky is blue. Yeah, exactly. And in a lot of the cases that I'm focusing on in the book, it, you can accept that things are the way they are right now without having to accept that they'll always be like this. And so you accept it. You say, it sucks that I'm in this position. I'm going to have to do something to get out of it. And very often there is something you can do, but it's okay to take a moment to just say, hey, this is this is kind of painful. This is not working the way I'd like it to work. Some change has been visited upon me in a way that I didn't anticipate or invite, and now I have to figure out what to do next. But it's okay to take a minute to strategize, slow things down, turn down the temperature. And that's what these geniuses from you know, Einstein did this, Mozart did this, Claude Monet did this. They all would spend long periods of time just kind of mired in what the situation was before they tackled it, before they came up with a strategy to move forward. You know, you said once they do the acceptance, one of the things they do is they take their foot off the gas and they might even start relaxing their definition of success. And it's interesting because you think when you're, you're stuck, you want to push harder. And that could be that maybe you need to do that in some situations. But oftentimes, if you just take your foot off the gas, that might help you get unstuck. It's like, I mean, the same thing when you're trying to get a car unstuck, right? You want to kind of rock it back and forth. So you're going to push on the gas, take it off, let it rock, push on the gas, and it'll get you unstuck. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And the way I think about it is there's a very big difference between being physically stuck and being stuck metaphorically or emotionally or psychologically the way I'm interested in this book. Now, there are all these cases of hysterical strength where you read someone, you know, lifted a car off another person or something like that. Humans are really well designed for for instances of being physically entrapped. We have a lot of mechanisms. We have a rush of adrenaline. All of that sort of helps us get unstuck physically. But the same just hurts you when you're trying to get unstuck mentally because what you really got to do is, as you said, turn down the temperature, slow things down. Your first instinct to just do anything to get unstuck in that case is just unhelpful. So I think that's a, that's a really important insight that the first thing you've got to do, as you say, is turn down the temperature. Yeah, and you mentioned Messi. He does this in his – he's the greatest soccer player ever, but he's got really bad nerves or anxiety before a game. And the way he, he counters that, and you go into detail about it, but basically he just says, I'm going to take my time before I get going in a game. He'll spend the first couple of minutes of a game just kind of walking around near the sideline, not, not being part of the action. It's totally fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's the greatest player today, maybe of all time. And I was very, very surprised to learn this, that he is he's among the most anxious soccer players on the field. 
And uh, in fact, in his early days, his coaches said, I don't know that this guy is going to make it because he's got talent, but he doesn't have the temperament for the game. And so Messi had to figure out a way to get unstuck. He would start games and sometimes he'd be physically sick. He just really couldn't play at the beginning of those games. And sometimes he would be debilitated. They'd have to take him off the field. So that's exactly right. What he does now is he spends the first roughly three or four minutes of the game ambling around the center circle of the, of the field. He doesn't really move around much. If you plot the movement of all the other players, they're darting around the field trying to get into the game. And he's barely moving. He walks. And he's doing that for two reasons. One of them is because it helps him calm his nerves, gives him a few minutes to kind of get into the game so he's more effective for the remaining you know, 85 plus minutes. But the other thing it does is it makes him incredibly good as a strategic perceiver of the game because he spends those few minutes saying, oh, I see there's an injury over there. That player's limping. These two players are not working particularly well together. I can exploit that later on. On his own team, he'll see who's playing well, who's doing something strange. And so what he does is he kind of compiles this idiosyncratic list of features of that particular game that he can then bank away and use for the remaining time in the game. And so it makes him just unbelievably effective for the rest of the game. Now, he's never scored a goal in the first two minutes of a soccer match, but he's scored in every minute from minute three on which shows you that he really isn't playing the game until that third minute. So another thing we need to learn how to do when we get stuck is learning how to fail well, because oftentimes we get stuck because we've had some sort of failure, right? We didn't achieve a goal or something like that happened. So we kind of were stuck in this little plateau mode and trying to figure out what to do. So what can we do to fail better? Because failing doesn't feel great. No, it doesn't feel great. The first thing to do is to recognize that there is an optimal failure rate in general, there are some studies that have tried to look at this. How do you maximize growth and how do you minimize getting stuck? And what you find is that about roughly one in six to one in four occasions when you're practicing or trying something or learning something new, you should be failing. If you fail much less than that, you're not going to grow. You're just going to be doing the same thing over and over and again, like hitting your head against the wall. If you fail much more than that, you're going to become demotivated. And that means that whatever you've put in front of yourself is a little bit too advanced for the level that you're at right now. And so that's the first thing. Failing well involves, first of all, failing at all. You've got to fail the right amount, roughly. And to temper the practice sessions and the learning experiences so that you're failing roughly the right amount. The second thing is to basically overtrain is one thing you can do that's very effective. There are a lot of athletes who do this, but to inoculate yourself against the hardship that will come when the real experience arrives. So, you know, there are golfers who will play three rounds of golf on a practice day so that when they have to play a single round of golf, they are deeply focused for that 72 plus or minus shots. And so if you're hitting 300 or 250 shots in a day and you can focus for all of those, it's obviously going to be easier to focus for 70 shots. And so overtraining is a great thing you can do. And then the last thing I would say about failing well is you want to make sure that as you fail and you don't quite reach your goals, the gap is getting smaller across time. So you're, you're learning to the point where you're converging on the goal, even if you haven't quite got there yet. And honestly, if you're not, and you're not happy with that, and it looks like over time you're diverging from the goal, you're moving further away from it, you're not getting closer, maybe it's time to try something else. Well, it's interesting, this idea of you need to fail in order to succeed, and failure closes the gap to your goal. This reminds me, did you watch that video of Giannis, the basketball player from the Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, he has that same sort of, he's had this great response to a reporter who asked him, you know, is the season of failure? Because the Bucks, you know, they lost to the Miami Heat. And he was, he re, his response was awesome. He just said, you asked me this question last year. It's a dumb question. He said, look, every time I fail, it's a step towards success. He says, Michael Jordan played 15 seasons. He won six championships. He says, were, were the other nine years of failures? Like, no, those, those failures led to those successes. So I think that's a great way to think about it. Failures are steps to success. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I thought you've captured the best parts of the video that where he talks about Jordan's 15-year career and says nine were nine of the years failure. I think one of the things that highlights as well is that we see failure as a kind of binary or failure success as a kind of binary. You're either failing or you're succeeding. And the idea that you can break down a career and say, well, fail, 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 success, fail, 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 success, the way this reporter was trying to do with Giannis, telling him that because he hadn't won a championship that year, it was a failure. It's just, it's, first of all, it's deeply unproductive. It doesn't help. It doesn't make your life better. It doesn't help you progress or persevere. But also, it's, a, it's just misguided. It's, the world doesn't operate on that particular binary because 
failures lead to the next thing. And the next thing is often better than what came before precisely because there was this, what that reporter would call failure. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. All right. So we've dealt with the emotional aspect of being stuck. So reframe how you think about failure take your foot off the gas, practice radical acceptance. The next part is to start coming up with a plan to get unstuck. And one of these things you suggest doing is called a friction audit. What is that and how can it help us get unstuck? 
Yeah, so this started, I, I do a fair amount of business consulting and consulting for charities and nonprofit organizations. And, you know, the big question a lot of these organizations have is how can we spend less money to make more of an impact or how can we spend less money to, to do better sales or whatever it is they want? And so the technique that I've found with a great return on investment is known as a friction audit. And so what you do is if you think about a company that's making a product, you essentially have two ways to improve your bottom line. One way is to make the product better, and that's expensive. You know, sweeten the deal, make the carrot more attractive, get people in the door, get more people in the door, have them stay for longer. You can do that as a business, but it's not cheap. It's hard. You're going to have competitors, and, you know, so that's not the road to go. The road to go is to say, one of the reasons we're not doing more or doing better is because there are friction points. People are getting stuck in interacting with our company or in the process of completing a sale or whatever it might be. So the best thing we can do is to remove some friction. So the friction audit is this process that I originally used in this business context where you say, where is the friction? How can we intervene on it? How can we sand it down so we remove it or, or at least make it a little bit less friction-filled? And then let's confirm that it's actually done some good. An example of this is I worked with a whole lot of shopping malls. They found that a lot of parents were coming and shopping and abandoning their carts without buying. They figured out it was because one of the kids they came with had a tantrum and they had to leave. So you put in these very inexpensive little play playgrounds and gyms and things, jungle gyms. They cost a few thousand dollars to install. And over the course of a year, you save $100,000 of lost sales. And so that small investment, massive return. But this works in our lives as well. You know, you can run a friction audit. I talk about this process in the book. You can run that process on any aspect of your life, relationships, work, creativity, athletics. It doesn't really matter what it is. It, it applies there as well. I mean, I imagine you could do this if you're trying to lose weight, kind of look at your life. Okay, what is causing me to maintain the weight that I'm at and preventing me from putting into action my intentions, right? So it could be, well, the friction point, you actually, you can actually do this, you can actually increase friction, right? If it's too easy to get to food that's not good for you, the friction audit would say, well, I can make this harder by just not even buying the stuff and putting it in my house. Yeah, exactly. My last book on phones and screens and how much time we spend on them was about largely this idea that it is just too easy to start using these products. And so they end up sucking up a huge amount of our lives. Just as you might say, I won't buy chocolate because I don't want to eat chocolate. You know, if you keep your phone far away from you, you create friction, you're much less likely to use your phone. And so this, it's an important general insight about humans that the things that are, are close to us or that are easy to access are the things we spend more time interacting with and doing. The things that are much further away tend to have a smaller impact on our lives. And so you've got to sort of design your the world around you, the way you design any other thing, the way an architect would design a building or a city, you've got to do that for your own world. And so keep things around you that you want to have around that'll do good things for you and the things that you don't want to keep around you because you think they're going to make your life worse off. Make sure that they're nowhere near you in physical space. So you also suggest when you're in that stuck place in life or in work is try copying others to help you get unstuck. How can that help you get unstuck? Yeah, it's funny that, um, you know, we privilege this idea of radical originality. One of the things I teach my MBA students, we talk about innovations and we look at all the greatest products of the last 50 years. We talk about them and I ask my students, tell me a product that's truly radically original, that had no, no predecessor. There was, it wasn't built on the ideas of someone else. And it's very, very, very difficult to do that with products. And it's just as difficult to do that with things like films or music or art. And the problem with privileging and putting on a pedestal radical originality is that it sets this unrealistic bar. And so I talk about the idea that a better way to go is to recombine old ideas. And actually, almost every instance of something that seems from the outside like it's new and radically different is just a new way of thinking of two things or meshing two or more things together. I talk a little bit about, for example, uh, Dave Grohl, Bob Dylan, these musicians who, when people talk about them, they say, you know, they're doing something that's pretty new and pretty different. And even other musicians say about Bob Dylan in particular, you know, he was a genuinely original voice of the 20th century. But when you go back and you look at where his origins began, he was combining folk, he was combining rock at the time, pop, he was combining blues. He put it all together in a, in a new way 
But the building blocks of all of that were not themselves new. And I, I think that's it's an important insight because it makes the process of coming up with good ideas, with good products, with good whatever things you're trying to create much more tractable. It means you're much more likely to succeed. When I read this idea of copying others, it made me think of the idea of woodshedding. Do you know about this idea? No, I don't. So woodshedding comes from jazz. You're supposed to go to the woodshed where it's kind of far away and no one can hear you in practice. And the idea is you practice where no one can hear you so that you could come back later and then show off what you've learned. And I think woodshedding, you can copy the work of others and woodshed at the same time, right? Like you want to do this in private. You wouldn't want to copy someone out in the public blatantly because that's just that's just copying. That's like plagiarism. Uh, but what you can do is you can take the work of others and practice with it privately, mess, remix it, try things. And then once you got something new, then you can bring it out. 100%, yeah. So no one would say that Dylan isn't doing something that's on some level different. I just think that the idea that these things that seem new are kind of mystical and just appear out of nowhere, that's the nonsense, right? So I'm sure Dylan did something like woodshedding. He took these ideas that he liked and maybe didn't even do it explicitly, but they were infused in his music. And so he went and he practiced and he, he created the, you know, the style that became Bob Dylan's style. But that doesn't mean that what he was doing was plagiarism or that it wasn't on some level new and different. It just means that all that other stuff seeped into it. It was like a sort of tea that had been made with all the the ideas that had come before, but you need time for it to steep. And that's that process of woodshedding or practicing or honing or whatever you want to call it. So I know, yeah, I know what's the guy's name that wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, oh, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. yeah. He supposedly typed out, I think it was the great Gatsby because he yes, just wanted, he wanted right. to see what it felt like to write a great novel. <laughs> Who knows if that did anything, but maybe it did. But I, I also, you know, Austin Kleon has that idea of steal like an artist. Yes. Right? All artists are just copying each other, but they're, it's not blatant, like word, you know, exact copy. Like you said, you just kind of, you work with the, the previous people's stuff until it seeps into what you do. And then you come out with something original. That's, that's how creativity works. You also have this chapter about when you're stuck, about understanding the idea or the difference between exploring and exploiting. And I really like this chapter. So what's the difference between exploring and exploiting? Yeah, this goes back to evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology that you you basically have essentially two ways to look for something new and fruitful and valuable. Let's say you're hunting and gathering. You're looking for fruit or food or whatever you're doing and you're roaming the savannah. It's thousands of years ago you can roam far and wide, you know, you can cover a lot of terrain very shallowly, or you can find an area that seems like it might be fruitful and really dig deeply into that area. But then you're going to be leaving a lot of the other pastures without your attention. And so you might be missing something. And that's really how we are as we navigate the world, as we figure out the best way forward. And so there's a lot of research on these two. Exploring is basically a moment where you say yes to, to opportunities or options. So if you think about, I, for me, it was like the early days of college. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So anytime an opportunity came along, I was like, yes, I will try that, see what that's like, figure out if that particular career path might work for me. I might meet a person who's interesting and shows me a new way of doing something. I'll just say yes to any invitation that comes my way. That's exploring. It's being open to different approaches. Jackson Pollock, the painter, for example, before he was doing his drip paintings that he became very famous for, was trying five or six different techniques. Peter Jackson, the director of Lord of the Rings films and The Hobbit, before he was this kind of giant fantasy epic film director and producer, he was doing a hundred other things. He wrote horror films. He wrote all sorts of other films. And so you've got to kind of dance around and figure out what works best. But if you do that forever, you're never going to get anywhere. So once you're done exploring, you basically have to call it and say, okay, I've been exploring for a while. Of the five things I explored, this one looks like it's the most fruitful. And so what I'm going to do moving forward is say yes only to that thing. I'm going to put all my time and attention and money towards that thing and say no to everything else. I'm going to become singularly focused on that thing and make the most of it. And that's when you see Jackson Pollock with his drip paintings and you see Peter Jackson with his fantasy epics. You just can't get there if you don't first explore and you can't succeed if you don't, after exploring, exploit, go really deep and make the most of what you've got. And so when you look at careers, you look for the period of careers where you find a hot streak, like the best period in someone's career. It's almost always 
after they have explored and then exploited, and sometimes multiple times between the two. Explore, then exploit. Explore, then exploit. And that's when those hot streaks come up. I think this is great advice for people, again, going back on middle age. If you feel like you've reached a point in middle age where you feel stuck, you probably had a period in your 30s, maybe through your 40s, where you were exploiting. Like you did all this exploration in your 20s. You uh, went to college, tried different classes, tried different careers. You moved to new cities, made new friends. And then you slowly found, here, this is what's working for me. I'm going to just, I'm going to exploit this. And you probably stopped exploring you might reach a point where you're like, I'm feeling stuck, I'm feeling stagnant. And that's where you have to sort of purposely and intentionally shift into exploration mode. And that can be hard because you're probably comfortable and there's going to be an inertia not to say yes to things or try new things, but that's what you got to do. Yeah, you're right. There is an element of difficulty here, right? Whenever you're doing something that you've been doing for a while and therefore by definition, perhaps you've reached a plateau, it's very comfortable at that point. Part of the plateau is this signal that you are doing something that no longer taxes you and so you're not improving. And there's, in some cases, nothing wrong with that. But there are these famous cases of people who said, I was overwhelmed with the job I was doing, so every day I wore the same clothes. You know, I had 10 of the same suit. Or, you know, Steve Jobs in his black turtleneck, Barack Obama in the same suits every day. That's that's an attempt to kind of minimize the, the mental load. And so there's value in that, in just doing things the same way all the time. But as you say, you have to reach a point where you say, I'm going to pivot back to exploring. You've got to range far and wide again. How have you done this in your own career? I mean, you've had a long career and varied career. How have you kind of gotten over that inertia to not explore when you needed to explore? Yeah. I mean, for me, this started really early. I was at university in Australia. I was studying actuarial science, which is this sort of high-level financial math course. And I knew I didn't like it. And I was on a fellowship. And one day, the person running the fellowship came in and said, if you keep doing this for another week, you're going to thereafter, if you ever quit, have to pay back the money. And that was the signal I needed. So I, I quit. I said, look, this isn't working for me. But I had no idea what to do next. I felt you know, profoundly stuck. I was obviously spending a fair amount of money being at the university, amassing a fair amount of debt. And I wanted to figure out what was next, but I had no idea where to go. So what I did was I spent six months going to every possible first level class that I could. I went to English classes, math classes, chemistry classes, engineering classes, psychology classes, law classes, you name it. I, I went and sat in and tried to get a taste of it. And that was my period of exploration. And from that, I realized that I liked psychology and I liked law. And those are the two degrees I did as an undergrad, psychology and law, and then ended up doing what I do now, which is sort of, in the beginning, it was a combination of the two. And then I, I pursued psychology more heavily and then ultimately ended up in a business school as a marketing professor. But that's all, I, I couldn't have done that without that six-month period of exploration. I needed to do that before I exploited the degrees and the courses that made the most sense to me. Well, I was thinking as you were saying that, another reason why going back into explore mode could be hard because it makes you feel dumb, right? Because you have to be a beginner again. Like you went to those introductory college classes and it doesn't feel good to be a beginner. You're thinking, well, I'm in, I've mastered some things. Why am I not sticking to that? But now you got to feel how bad it feels sometimes to be a complete noob at something. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's not easy on a certain level. It's, uh, you got to swallow your pride, but also you can think about this. There are two ways to live in any moment. You're either stagnant or you're growing. And one way to grow is to be a beginner. Beginners grow really fast, much more rapidly than experts grow. And so to go from being a beginner to being someone who's moderately proficient at something or lots of things, that is a true form of growth that I think a lot of us don't experience and don't cultivate. There is massive benefit in that. I will say that period of exploration where I didn't end up becoming an English major or a chemistry major or a math major, I still learned quite a lot about those areas. And I think that was important for me as well. That period of gathering little bits of information about 25 different disciplines had a massive amount of value that I didn't foresee. So it's not like this is all going to waste when you're exploring. It's all becoming a part of who you are. And, and David Epstein wrote the book Range about exactly that idea that in the course of ultimately flourishing, you've got to kind of spend some time just dancing around different areas and figuring out if they're worthwhile for you. And that will have a beneficial effect for whatever it is you ultimately specialize in later on. Yeah, no failures, just steps to success. That's it. How do you know if you're in the explore mode, how do you know when you need to shift to exploit mode? 
Yeah, so there are a few ways to do this. One is to just say, I am going to give myself a certain amount of time. So in the, the example I gave you when I was jumping around from different course to course in college, I knew that the semester was going to end at a certain date. So I used that as my guide and then I would have to sign up for a new program. And that's what I did. So I had a very clear six month period to do that. If you have objective metrics to pay attention to, you know, if you're doing something that gives you numerical feedback, you can use that feedback. Like for example, you might say, I'm going to try these five different techniques. Let's say you're, you're trying to work out which I don't know, technique of, of art is the one that you want to pursue if you're an artist, something like that. You could say to yourself, I'm going to create five artworks in each style. And then once I've done that, I'll have my 25 artworks, five styles times five works, and then I'm going to decide which one to exploit. So you, you can use different decision rules to decide. I think also it's important to pay attention to what it feels like to be in this process because you can get to the point where exploring gets stale where you start feeling like, I, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I'm ready to really focus on something. And I know that happens with me with books. Between books, I will, this is my third book now. Between books, I'll, I'll say, I'm interested in 10 different things, but I don't know when I'm ready to start actually making one of them a book. So I will spend a certain amount of time until I, you know, that the ideas become from 10 to nine to eight to seven. And then I'll be left with a few that look like good candidates and eventually I'll hit a wall and just say, I can't keep noodling about with this. I've got to really make, make a go of it. And that's when I'll write the proposal and, and work on the book. So we've talked about how to deal with being stuck by changing how we think about being stuck, changing about how we think about failure, thinking of ways we can get unstuck. But then eventually you got to start taking action. So what role does action take in helping us get unstuck? Yeah, I, so it's funny. The last chapter in the book is titled Action Above All. And that's because all of the discussions about emotions, slowing things down, strategies and so on, none of that would matter for getting unstuck if you didn't do something. You know, all of that is in the service of action and action is really the main thing that we're focusing on here. So action is critically important for getting unstuck because it's the thing that actually unsticks you. And it, that's true in a sort of very obvious sense that you can't get unstuck if you're not moving, if you're static. But it's also true in a more profound sense, which is that when you do something, when you act, even if the action itself is not dramatically productive, even if it doesn't produce something that you can then use for the rest of time, the mere fact that you're acting lubricates the wheels and gets you moving forward. There's this great example of this that I love. Jeff Tweedy, the front man of Wilco, who writes music for the band Wilco, but also is a writer. He writes books. He's talked a lot about his creative process, and he talks about the fact that you know, he wakes up a lot of days. He's been doing this a long time for decades. And he'll wake up on a lot of days and say, I don't feel like being creative today. Nothing's going to happen. And so what he does is he, he says to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend say half an hour in the morning, pouring out all the bad ideas, you know, like sort of extracting them from my brain, putting them on the page, and then that will make way for the good stuff. And so what he does is he says to himself, what's the worst sentence I could write right now? Or what's the worst you know, a bit of music I could compose. And he does that. Sometimes it's better than he thinks and it's valuable, but a lot of the time it's not, it's not actually useful, but it's, it, by definition, by doing that, lowering the bar all the way down to the ground, you're still acting. And so you show yourself something about your capacity to act rather than sitting around and navel gazing, you're doing something and that there's value in that. Yeah. I like that idea that quantity and quality are related because the more stuff you put out, you increase the chances of you actually having a home run. I mean, the same thing with baseball, right? I think what everyone famously says, Babe Ruth, you know, he's home run king. But he had like the most strikeouts. He struck out a ton of times. Uh, exactly. But he's, he's taken action. The same, same idea applies to any other domain in life. Exactly. And then also you talk about, besides taking action on the thing that you're wanting to get unstuck in, you also talk about just physically moving can help you get unstuck. Like actually t getting up and moving your body can help you get unstuck from whatever it is you're stuck in. Yeah, there's a lot of research on the value of walking, of moving. And so if you're trying to think of something and you're sitting on your seat at your desk and it's not working, walk outside if it's nice out, get on a treadmill if it's not, move your body, pace around. It tends to sort of grease the wheels a little bit and get things moving again. If you are an athlete, do whatever it is that you like doing. There's this amazing set of videos of Paul Simon, who obviously not an athlete, but a great musician. And Paul Simon was notoriously shy 
but he was he was on a number of talk shows in the 70s and 80s. One of them was the Dick Cavett show and he would get onto the show and Cavett would ask him questions and he would just absolutely struggle to respond and it was clear that he wasn't comfortable being there. He would even make comments about the microphone and its position. He just felt really uncomfortable. But Cavett very wisely said to him, why don't you pick up your guitar and show us how you wrote, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Water or something like that. And um, Simon did that. And the minute he started strumming, he was charming and relaxed and things came to him much more easily. So if there's something you do, whether it's lifting weights, going for a run, riding on a bike, it doesn't matter, rowing, whatever it is, that movement seems to be it gets you to a comfortable place mentally as well and and seems to lubricate uh, whatever gears need to be turning in your head to unstick you. Yeah, getting into your body gets you out of your head sometimes, which can 100%. be useful. Well, Adam, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and my main channels. That's where I post information. I've been posting about the book a fair amount there, so there's quite a lot of information there. I also have a, a website, Adam Alter Author, that is basically a compilation of all the press material and other things that have been written about the book or that I've written about the book. And those are probably the two places. But uh, yeah, the book is available online. It's available in bookstores and will be available from May 16. Fantastic. Well, Adam Alter, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. My guest is Adam Alter. He's the author of the book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, adamalterauthor.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash unstuck. We can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you to not listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.